All right, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Samuel chapter 13 first, that is, 1 Samuel chapter 13. Uh, we're going to go through this chapter, um, and, and really you could go through the end of uh, chapter 14 to kind of tell the whole story, but I really did want to break this apart because we're going to have something that's, that's really, really important happen in this chapter that we need to see in the life of Saul. Um, we're going to discover today that he is a disobedient king. I know that I have given you spoilers. I've told you things, and hopefully you've read it a time or two, so you know uh, that this thing with Saul isn't going to end well. Um, but you would hope, you would think, that it might go better for a little bit longer than it actually does. Um, when we studied last week, we saw that, that God was doing everything in his power to set Saul up for success. He wasn't going to force him to succeed, but he did everything. He, he gave him a new heart. He anointed him. He gave him Samuel as a mentor, somebody that could tell him what he needed to do. He clearly defined the roles. If you'll remember, Samuel even wrote a book explaining exactly what the king was supposed to do. So Saul was not left on his own to rule. He was not left on his own to be the man that God wanted him to be. He was set up for success. But even in those passages, we did observe some things that were character flaws in Saul that would come back to haunt him later. He had no clue as far as spiritually what kind of relationship God wanted to have with him. Um, he did not really have the courage to face his own people. Remember at his coronation, um, when he knows that he's supposed to be king, uh, they have to go find him hiding among the baggage. He simply doesn't want to, to, to be before the people, and so... We already see, I guess you would say, some, uh, some, some foreshadowing that this is not going to be um, a match made in heaven between Saul and the people of Israel. He's tall, he's handsome, but that's about where it stops. Um, so today we're going to see a key moment in Saul's life where he uh, chooses to let or, or to lose faith and to disobey God. So we're going to see this moment where he chooses to uh, lose faith and also He's going to choose to disobey God in this moment. So the sermon in the sentence is this. The Lord goes before us and fights our battles. We must never run out ahead of him. Um, you, you, might, you might think about the idea of patience because that's very, very important. And that's where Saul really falls apart is when he should show patience. Um, he does the exact opposite of that. So let me read this passage to you. 1 Samuel um, uh, chapter 13, verse 1 through 23. It says, okay, so let me just go ahead and get this out here. I'm going to read verse 1 and then tell you why your Bible probably says something different. Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years, uh, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, comma, and then it goes on. Okay, so some of your translations are going to say Paul, or Saul was 30 years old and he reigned over Israel for 42 years. Some of yours are going to say something similar to what I just read to you. Um, the, the text there in the Hebrew, like our source material, is not exactly super clear. And so some translations, the translations that say that he reigned for 42 years, they're actually getting that from something um, Paul said in Acts chapter 13 that Saul reigned for 40 years. And so that's kind of where some of that is coming from. Um, the small number is probably what it was, and the original writer here that's recording this is probably showing the, you that, that, that Saul was basically anointed for one year, became king, reigned for two years, and then messed it all up. Because that's the story that we're about to get. 
And so this is very, very early in Saul's reign. So that's, that's the main thing. There is another point later with some numbers. I'll point that out when we get to it. But there's another point later um, where numbers are a little different from one translation to the next. But we'll, you'll see that when we get to it. Verse 2. So Saul had been reigning for two years when this happens. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country, uh, or, and the hill country of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan in Gilbeh uh, of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to be uh, or to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, "Let the Hebrews hear." And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were calling out or were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots. Some of your Bibles are probably going to say 3,000. Numbers are hard. Um, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, uh, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. So no matter what your Bible says, whatever translation it says, it's always going to say like there were as many as the sand on the seashore. Whatever Israel was facing was an army much larger than what they had, and it was incredibly intimidating when they faced it. That's, that's the part that we need to remember. Okay? Um, they came up and encamped at Michmash uh, to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble... For the people were hard-pressed. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks, in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. If you remember in chapter 10, Samuel said, you'll go uh, to Gilgal and you'll wait seven days and then I'll appear. Um, so he was supposed to wait these seven days. He waited the seven days, the time appointed to Samuel, or the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, "Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings." And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. The original text says to bless him. He's going out celebrating. Hey, bless you. You know, greetings in the name of the Lord. Samuel wasn't having it. Uh, Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, I compelled myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept the word, or you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And, Sam, and Samuel rose up and went from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. 
they went up from Gilgal to Gilba of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with him stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned towards Orpah to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Okay, all right, so let's get into this. So the first thing we're going to see here uh, is a victory that ultimately leads to fear. Um, and I've already mentioned that the uh, translations here are kind of all over the place. The main thing that we need to know is this is early in Saul's reign. This is like maybe two years after he's been coordinated. Things are, are moving along, um, but he's obviously got a fight on his hand with the Philistines. And, and I'll try to kind of fill in the, the, the pieces and, and let you know about that. Um, and again, Paul tells us in Acts 13 that Saul had reigned for 40 years, so we kind of get some understanding as to why the translations may be a little back and forth. Um, but the people of Israel, if you'll remember, had wanted a king so that they could have someone that would go out before them and fight their battles. That's why they asked for a king, and that's exactly what Saul was doing. He was following the wishes of the elders of Israel and formed an army to fight the Philistines. That's what they asked him to do, and so that's what he was in the business of doing. Now, this army consisted of 3,000 men, and we can see that Saul was being selective. So he chose 3,000 men and sent the rest of the men to their tents. Remember, they were able to raise a pretty large army. We, we read that in the last passage, that they were able to raise a pretty large army, but he was being very selective, and he only took um, 3,000 of them and kept them with him. So he splits his army even further, and he puts them in strategic positions. So where is he actually going to put his army? So he puts a, a, a good bit of his army. In fact, Benjamin, can you go to the um, map? Maybe not. Map. Oh, that's going to be really easy for you all to see. Okay, um, so imagine that there's a map on the wall that you can see. Um, I got one in my hand, so I'll try to explain it for you. So roughly about the middle where all those little lines converge, that's Micmash, and that's where we're talking about for a lot of this stuff, okay? And so that's where Saul is, that's where he summons his army, um, and that's where he musters his strength of 3,000 men. But he takes a thousand of them and sends them with his son, Jonathan, and they go down a little bit south. You can maybe see a pink, red, I, I don't know colors very well. You can see a line that goes a little bit more towards the middle. It goes south towards Geba. So that's where Jonathan goes. 
Now, the scale is cut off of this, but this is, this is blown up. Israel's small, right? And so you're looking at maybe two, three miles for some of these things, four or five miles for others. Like, like Israel's small, and so we're not looking at massive distances. This isn't from, you know, like Birmingham to Atlanta or something. We're talking small distances here. Okay, so, so Saul has his people at, at Michmash. Um, Jonathan is south in Geba. Now, what you probably, none of you can see, is that in the middle of those two is where Geba, G-E-B-A, is, is in your Bible. That's where that is, okay? So let's talk about this. This is all within the land that belongs to the tribe of Benjamin, okay? And so Mike Mesh was kind of the, um, the, 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 well, not kind of, it was the hometown of Saul, but um, Geba was where he was, where Saul was making his capital, Okay? So, uh, or Gilba, Gilba was where he's making his capital. Geba, G-E-B-A, was a city in the tribe of Benjamin, but it, was, it belonged to the Levites. So it was a place that the Levites were supposed to be allowed to live, and it was supposed to be a place associated with worship. But that's where the Philistines were. It says that there was a garrison of Philistines there. Now, in ancient times, you didn't leave your army in one place, and you didn't keep your army standing at all times. Because your army was also your farmers and, and your, your smiths and all those other things. And so what is going on here is those that would have been professional soldiers, a few hundred, not, not, not a thousand, but maybe a few hundred people were stationed there in Geba, and that was their base of operations. It was also for the Philistines a way to say, hey, we're right in the middle of all of your business and we're operating just fine. And so that was a little bit about what the Philistines were saying there. And so what we see is that Saul was kind of on a strategic point. So you can't really see the green dotted lines, but north of the green dot, or north of Mikemash, as you go up those dotted lines, that leads you into that Orpha, which leads you into the northern tribes of Israel. And what that, what that is, is reinforcements. That's supplies, that's reinforcements. Remember, this is the first time Israel is really functioning as a nation since Joshua. And so before, whatever tribe was in trouble, that's where their help came from. But now we're talking about a nation. We're talking about 12 tribes. Now all of this is happening in a very small area, but ideally you would get help from all over Israel. And so Saul is guarding that road where his help can come from. Whereas Jonathan is going down, he actually went south of the enemy, and he's going to come back up and he's going to attack. And that's exactly what is about to happen, is Jonathan attacks um, Geba. I told you it belonged to the Levites, and so they were supposed to take it back. Um, and Jonathan is able to win a battle that rallied Israel to the cause. So again, we don't get any details to this particular battle all we know is that Jonathan goes in and he is successful. He has a thousand men at his disposal. And you have to understand that if Saul had a f several thousand and he whittled them down to three thousand, that would mean that these were some good soldiers. These were some of the best soldiers that he had. So that thousand that he sent with Jonathan, and, and I've read some commentaries where, where they were saying that Saul was afraid to fight, so he sent his son Jonathan to fight in his stead. I have a low opinion of Saul, but not that low. You would not send your son into danger when you're afraid to go into danger. I just don't see that for, and especially your firstborn, this is your heir. This is, this is the one that's supposed to take over when you die. I don't have that low opinion of Saul. I believe that Saul thought he was more exposed holding a road that the Philistines definitely wanted to hold than Jonathan was going with a thousand elite soldiers to take on a garrison of maybe a couple hundred guys. 
Um, these were not always walled cities, so it wasn't like trying to take over Jericho or something like that where there were walled cities. This would have been just a Levite village, so to speak. And so it wouldn't have been that hard to overwhelm a garrison if you had a lot more numbers. I know that's a lot of battle stuff and things like that, but we just have to understand that whatever happened, Jonathan is always presented as a young man of faith. He is presented as a young man that loved the Lord and even in some cases would disobey his father if he knew that he, he was doing what God wanted him to do. And so in this case, Jonathan, and, and God, it doesn't say that God did anything miraculous, but we know that God was with Jonathan because he has this great victory. And we understand that at this particular time, that was, a, that was going to evoke a, a, a national response. And so once Jonathan wins this victory, that's when Saul gathers his men and calls them to go over to, go back to the map, uh, calls them to go to, um, it's cut off on mine, uh, Gilgal. So Gilgal is the far east, that orange line all the way over uh, to the far east. That's Gilgal. So, okay, so that's, that's about a day's march, to be totally honest with you. Again, Israel's small. Um, but that's where they're gathering, and that's where he's going to muster all of his strength. So you got those 3,000 men, but now word has went out. We've won a battle against the Philistines. Get ready. Let's go and fight. Okay. So remember, we've got the 3,000 because now Jonathan is with him. And so we've got these 3,000 and others are showing up. This is where things begin to change because not only did Israel respond in a national way to this one battle that Jonathan won, the Philistines respond in a very national way to this as well. And so that's where we see the number either like 3,000 or 30,000 chariots. It doesn't much matter because chariots in the ancient world were a lot like tanks in the modern world. They were not something that you could easily handle. They're going to be armored. And so whether it be bronze or iron, the Philistines used both. Iron's better. Um, they were going to be pulled by horses. They were going to have iron uh, or bronze armoring on them. There was going to be a man running or operating that chariot that was going to be able to throw spears. He was going to have a sword. He was going to have armor. So you might shoot an arrow. You're not getting through his armor. This guy was, was very dangerous on a battlefield. 3,000 of them would run you down. They also had thousands of horsemen. And so you would have had, not knights in the way that you might think in the Middle Ages, but you would have had men on horses with armor, swords. They would have been deadly guys. They're moving faster than you can move on foot. So that's also dangerous. And then it says that they would have had regular troops as well. So what happens is the Philistines actually go to Mikmash, where Saul originally was. They set up there and they array themselves for battle. So they're encamped and they are visible. And the people of Israel see them. So what do the people of Israel do when they see them? The people succumb to fear when they saw the enemy's full power before them. I don't need to remind you that they stand with the God that brought them up out of Egypt. I don't need to remind you that they stood with the God that made the walls of Jericho crumble. I don't need to remind you that they stood with the God that had went out before them multiple times and won very unlikely battles. But they were standing with that God. But instead of continuing to stand with that God, they began to hide. Now, the Bible says that some of them hid in caves. Some of them hid in holes. Some of them went in tombs. Others went in cisterns, like underground caverns where water would be running. They were hiding. Those were the brave ones. There were some that just totally, they became refugees. They left. They crossed the fords of Jordan. They went into foreign lands. They were gone. They were out of here. 
And so the people of Israel that had come to fight, now let me, let me try to draw you a picture, a little bit of a visual picture. So you do have the Philistines, and they're arrayed for battle, and they've got their chariots, they've got their horses, they've got their foot soldiers, okay? Every one of them's going to have some pretty good armor, some pretty good weapons. They're going to be rigged and outfitted for battle. On the other side, in the other corner, you've got the contender. You've got Israel. And some of them have garden tools. Maybe the lucky ones have some leather shirt that might take one cut from a sword before you lose an arm. That's going to be about the extent of it. They're not going to have the same kind of weapons. They've got a wood chopping axe, maybe. A maddox, we would think like a pick, like something to break dirt up with. Some of them might have been trying to fashion a, a plowshare into something that they could fight with. Okay, and they're looking across at these guys that do war for their business, and, and, and they're farmers, and, and they're afraid. They are afraid, and so they run for the hills. They hide. Can you blame them? I mean, if you're a military facing a military, and, and, and you come at them with sticks and stones, and they come at you with swords and shields, wouldn't you be afraid? I would be. But then again, they stood with the Lord who had brought them up out of Egypt, who had crushed the army of the Pharaoh. They've dealt with chariots before. They know what God can do in a battle like that. But they were afraid, and they ran, and they hid. So the few that were left, about 600. That's about all it is. They, they count them eventually. The few that are left, it's about 600. That's all they've got. So let me just remind you of something. The Lord will never lead us into a battle that he cannot win. He just won't do that. And so the people of Israel, yes, they were in a fight. They were in a fight that outclassed them in a secular way, in a worldly way. Yes, they were outclassed. They weren't going to be able to beat the Philistines that way. The history books tell us that. You look at the secular history books, the Philistines were far more powerful than the Israelites. They were inhabited the same land. They were far more powerful. They had iron. They had the weapons. They had the numbers. They were better entrenched. It was, it was dangerous for the Israelites at this particular time. Uh, and history can't even tell you why they survived. History can't really point to a reason, a strategic reason, why when David became king, Israel began to thrive. They can't even point to exactly why or how that occurred. But it's definitely worth noting. Um, but you know, they were outnumbered. They were outmatched. But they stood with God. Now right now, our battles are not being fought with swords and shields. But we may feel as equally outmatched by the things that we're facing. It's not one thing. Any of us are capable of handling one problem. It's all the problems. All the problems that pile up. So you might have a few problems at work, and if that's all you had, you could handle that, right? But maybe there's a few problems at home. Maybe there's money issues. Who isn't having a money issue with inflation the way it is? We, we all are facing all of these problems all together. And, and, then, and then you get sick and you're like, that's the last straw. I just, I can't do it anymore. I can't take it anymore. Well, we are going to be surrounded at times. Just like the Israelites were. But let me tell you, what they chose to do was hide because they were trusting in their own strength anyway. They chose to run away because they knew their strength would fail. There were very few of them that were standing, and, and the Bible tells us even those were terrified. We don't really have an example, but we need an example of somebody brave enough to stand before the enemy in the strength of the Lord. Now, one day, 
that king is coming. We'll see that king. In this sermon series, we'll see a king like that. But let me tell you, when we face these odds, when we face these kinds of troubles, we're going to have to stand for the Lord, with the Lord, and wait for his victory. That's not what Saul does. And so we're now going to start looking um, at a sin that led to rejection. Okay, so the Bible doesn't say that Saul was scared. Uh, he makes a bad choice, but it doesn't tell us that he's scared. And there's so much truth and embarrassing truth about Saul that if he were scared, I believe we would have been told that. Um, you know, they don't hold back. They don't, they don't say, well, you know, there's, this, is, this is not Israeli propaganda. This is the truth here. Okay, and so Saul, it doesn't say that Saul was scared, but he was dealing with a whole bunch of scared folks. So he's babysitting a terrified army, a tiny terrified army, uh, and he's waiting uh, for Samuel, uh, really for reasons he doesn't understand. All Saul really knows is that a sacrifice needs to be made, and Samuel's not there to make it, so he doesn't understand that, that it's his place to be the king, it is Samuel's place to be the prophet, and it's God's place to tell both of them what to do. He doesn't get that. He just simply doesn't understand. And so he believes that the Philistine army could attack at any time because he knows that there's going to be a counterattack, and he knows that they are better equipped and, 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 and just have more people than he does. Um, and, and again, he believed that divine favor was transactional. He believed that God would not be with him if he didn't make that sacrifice that he was waiting on Samuel to make. And so there was a burnt offering and there was a peace offering. So he decides to go ahead and start that process. He makes the burnt offering, but he doesn't get to the peace offering um, yet. So he doesn't allow Samuel to do that part. So Saul allowed the sight of the Philistines and the fear of the people affect his own faith. Again, there's no holding back, so I don't think Saul was scared. Um, maybe he wasn't smart enough to be scared. I don't know, but it doesn't seem that. What it seems is if he says, this thing has to happen, Samuel's not here to do it, he didn't understand that it wasn't his place, and so he did it anyway. There's definitely some lessons to be learned from that. The fact that even when we're not scared of the things that we're facing, but we have to wait on the Lord and depend on Him to have multiple people in place to do their role before we can do our role, there's a lesson to learn in that kind of patience, to wait in that kind of way. Um, Henry Blackaby, in Experiencing God, he's the one that said, when you're in a place and God hasn't given you new instructions, continue following the old instructions until you get new instructions. And so we're supposed to continue to do what we've been told to do until we're told to do something different. And the, really, the, the key component in what Saul was told to do was wait. He couldn't do that. He couldn't stand that, so he couldn't do that. So the required sacrifice, it could be made at sunup or it could be made at sundown. And so any time on that seventh day, Samuel could have perfectly fulfilled his word and his role by showing up and making that sacrifice. And what we see is that on that seventh day, Saul went ahead and made the sacrifice and immediately Samuel showed up. So Samuel could have still made the sacrifice on the seventh day just as he said he would. And so, but Saul didn't give him a chance. Um, so Saul makes this burnt offering, but he doesn't make it to the peace offering. Um, and when he sees Samuel coming, Saul runs out there to greet him and, hey, welcome, how are you? Bless you, Lord bless you. And, and Samuel is just not interested at this point. Samuel says, what have you done? And look at, look at, look at what Saul says. We have to read this one more time um, just because I want you to know what he says. So look at uh, chapter 13, verse 11. And Samuel says, what have you done? And let's pay attention to what... I want you to underline where you see Saul take responsibility for his actions. 
So get your pens ready and underline that when you see it. When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. What did y'all underline? Because I didn't get anything for that one. He didn't take responsibility. Not at any point did Saul say, okay, so, yeah, I stepped out of line here. I, forgive me, I went beyond myself. There's none of that. There's none of that. So when I read this passage the first time, this time getting ready for it, I thought, man, God really had him on a short leash. I mean, as soon as he messed up, he's done. But look at his response. His response is not, I know I did wrong. His response is, excuse the people. Excuse you, Samuel, it's your fault. Excuse the Philistines. So I'm the one that did what needed to be doing. He didn't get it. He absolutely was so obtuse that he did not see his own sin in any of this. He said, well, somebody had to get the show on the road, and so that was me. And so he steps up and he does the work that Samuel should have done. He did not have repentance because he didn't even admit his sin. Repentance is important, but confession does come first, and we're not there yet. You know, Saul sounds a little like Adam, the woman you gave me. I mean, he sounds a little like Adam and all the other sinners in the Bible that just start pointing their fingers in other directions. You know, we could spend a long time talking about Saul and his excuses. And it's kind of fun because it's, in a, in a detached way, it's kind of comical that he can blame so many people and not blame himself. But by golly, it's like looking in the mirror sometimes, isn't it? When you look at what Saul did, he justified he equivocated. He did the things that we'll do when we don't do what we're supposed to do. Well, I know what I was supposed to do, but there was this, and there was that, and there was the other. So let's learn from what Saul didn't do. Let's start when we know we've done wrong. Even if we know all the reasons we did wrong, let's start with confession. Lord, I did wrong. Then let's move to repentance. Lord, I never want to do this again. Give me a clean heart. Give me a new mind. That's not where Saul was. That's where he should have been. And so, Samuel has a pretty intense response. Samuel delivers the judgment of the Lord upon Saul promptly, but with promise. And so let's look at verse 13. He says, you have done foolishly. Let me be careful about that. That bold statement says, but with prom not promise for Saul. Saul don't get any promises right now. It's promise for the people, because ultimately the Lord is the shepherd of the people, not just the king. So again, verse 14, 13, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. And again, the first time I read this, I thought, Lord, you are quick with this one. I mean, there's no patience, there's no second chances. But then the more you look at it, he piled on the excuses. He had already displayed these kinds of tendencies and, and you know, He's in a big position. He, he's not a little shepherd out in a field somewhere where God can teach a lesson. He is the king. He is in charge of the people that are God's people. And he made a huge mistake and would not take ownership of it. And so therefore, God tears down his house. Verse 14, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be 
prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Obviously, he's talking about David. Samuel doesn't know David, but Samuel at this moment is just presenting what God's putting on his heart, right word for word. And we know that he's talking about David. And you know, when I read this, I definitely know that Samuel was talking about David, but I can see glimmers of even a brighter hope laying in the future when we see what Samuel says about this. So the dynasty of Saul would not last, um, but the good news is that God had chosen a prince um, that would be after his own heart. So it does seem like this judgment is, is a little harsh and a little quick. But what we must learn, and I think something we need to recognize in our own life, is that there are certain sins that God will not tolerate. Saul acted without faith. God will not tolerate faithful, faithlessness. God will also not tolerate disobedience. If he has given us clear instruction, he expects us to follow those clear instructions. That is very, very important. And so we've got we to recognize that. All right, so there's some more things at the end of this text. And I'm not really going to preach it, but I'll kind of try to help understand a little bit about what happens. So it tells us that, that the, the Israelite army, all 600 of them, wind up basically about two and a half miles away from where the Philistines are encamped. Now, at this point, you don't have a garrison of Philistines. You have an army of Philistines. And they're sending out raiding parties. And these raiding parties are there to make life miserable for the people. You have to understand that they're going to go to farms and they're going to take the stores of supplies that people have laid up. They're going to burn fields. They're going to burn houses. They're going to destroy anything that they can. But they are also in very strategic places. They have blocked north. They have blocked east. They have blocked west. They have blocked south. So essentially, they've surrounded this little number of 600 Israelites. That's what they've done. So they've got raiding party. You can't march an army past a raiding party. You might have an army that could fight them, but you can't march past them. And so no matter where Israel's looking for help, they can't get past the Philistines, not without another battle. And then that would be a battle without their king. So obviously they couldn't do that. So they're surrounded here. And then that's when it begins to tell us about the fact that the Philistines had the, the Israelites on lockdown when it comes to metal. And you might think that's not that big a deal, but it is a huge deal. If you, so just think about it. So this is the Iron Age and Bronze Age, but they weren't allowed to work metal. So what's left? Stones? Sticks? Can you imagine a flint arrow against an iron armor plate? It ain't going to work. There's nothing that they could really do to, to, to be very effective against the Philistines at this point. So this picture is getting darker and darker as we look at it. And of course, because, because Saul has already went ahead of the Lord, it might even seem like there's no real point for them to fight this battle because maybe they've already abandoned the Lord. Now, they are not doomed. As much as it seems like they are, I really, really don't want to steal the thunder of the next sermon, but they're not doomed. Something good happens. Something good happens through Jonathan, not necessarily through Saul, but something good happens. And we see that God has not left his people. He has not abandoned his people. Even though this king is now doomed, God is not going to punish all the people for the sins of this king. He is a good and faithful and loving God. 
And so what I want to remind you is that even when the Lord judges sin, he extends a reason to remain hopeful. I told you when I first read this, I thought the Lord was being very harsh with Saul. I mean, it was his, his first big mistake, and boom, he's done. But think about it like this. If there was one sin in our lives that was not covered by the blood of Jesus, we would be judged and we would be cast away from God's presence forever. Just one sin. Wouldn't matter what it was. Adam and Eve committed one sin, they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. Wouldn't have mattered. No matter what the sin is, one sin is enough to condemn. And so when we look at what's going on right here with Saul, we have to understand that God does judge harshly. And we look at our country. Well, let's stick with Israel for just a second. They wanted a king they could follow. They got a guy that was tall. They got a guy that was handsome. They got a guy that was pretty good in battle. And so they were looking to follow a man. They were looking for somebody. They were longing for a king that they could serve. They thought they had found it in Saul first try. Think about us in America today. How we might be longing for a president that's, that's, that's moral. Now, I, I know decades now we've been looking, we've saying, man, I wish, I wish we could have a king that was a Christian. I wish we could have a king, I mean a president, hmm, Freudian slip there. I wish we could have a president that we could look up to, that we could respect. A, a president that doesn't have skeletons in his closet, a president that doesn't embarrass us, a president that isn't sinful down to his core. But I assure you, as long as we're looking for a man to follow, we will be disappointed. President, king, pastor, whatever, will always be disappointed. We need to look to the Lord. And more specifically, we need to look to that king that we've already heard about, King Jesus. You want a king that you can look up to? Jesus is the king. You want a king that has not been stained by sin? Jesus is the king. You want to look to a king that will fight your battles and win your battles? Jesus is the king. You want to look to a king that will rescue us when the world has abandoned us? Jesus is that king. We know that he is victorious. We know that he is not just our king. He is our God. He is our Savior. He is our everything. He is the answer to the questions and the challenges in our lives. If you find it very easy to identify with the Israelites this morning when they're looking at the Philistines and saying there's too many of them, remember Jesus and that He has won that battle. If you find it easy to identify with Saul when he just took the plan of the Lord and ran ahead with it, ran ahead of God, Remember that God has a plan. He has a purpose. He has timing. Not only have the battle lines in our lives already been drawn, the enemy is there, invisible, and we are surrounded and, and, and outnumbered by every real way. I want to tell you that that war has already been fought. It's been won. Jesus is victorious. He is our king. He is the king like no other. So we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful, especially when we know the battle's been won. Now, I'd love to believe the best about Saul. I'd love to believe that Saul knew, hey, we make the sacrifice, we got God on our side, we can't lose. I'd love to believe the best about Saul. Samuel's reaction, the judgment that God placed on him, makes me think maybe not. 
but we might feel that way. We might think as long as God's on our side, we can go do whatever. I remember preachers when I was a kid, and maybe y'all have heard a preacher say this, I'm so fired up right now I could go attack hell with a water pistol. You ever heard a preacher say that? I've, I've heard preachers say that, and you know, you think, yes, but we can't run ahead of God. We've got to do what God wants us to do when he wants us to do it, because he has a plan. And it's time sensitive. God will put us in action. And God will expect us to go when he says go, but he will expect us to wait when he says wait. So we should wait on the victory of the Lord and look to the hope that the king provides. We've got to wait on him. And then when he says go, that's when it's go time. And so I want to encourage you this morning as we look at Israel and the Philistines, it looks like a whole lot of bad news. It looks like a whole lot of defeat. It looks like a whole lot of battle. But that's what life looks like. It's all messy. The battle lines are all confused. You never know where the enemy is or how he's going to attack. But you know that he's out there. And you know that in, in every secular way, he's got you outnumbered and outclassed. But let me tell you, God is in control. Jesus, our king, has already won those battles. You see, the reality is, and we just studied this in Romans, sin was our king before Jesus. Sin was defeated by Jesus, and now Jesus is our king. And so we're looking for that day that he gives us the ultimate victory. But until that day, we've got to trust him. We've got to wait on him, and we've got to do what he calls us to do. God wants us to be faithful. He wants us to be obedient. But most of all, he wants us to belong to him and him alone. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you so much for your word. And, and Lord, with all this talk of war and battle, it can be a little depressing. But definitely, when we look at the King, we look at King Jesus and the victory that he has already won, we have a reason to celebrate this morning. Lord, I want to pray first for anybody that doesn't know Jesus as their King. I pray that today would be the day that they become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, that they follow after Jesus, that they give up the, the crowns of this earth, they give up hanging on to the, to the power that this earth has, and they fully and completely rely on you. And Father, for those of us that are already walking that kingdom path, I pray that we can walk it with braveness. I pray that we can walk it with faithfulness, with obedience, and Lord, when it requires it, patience. I pray that we would never go ahead of you that we would never try to go around you, that we would always stay in the center of your will. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.